Hi, this is Adrian Paul, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hello, this is BT Edney. I played Heather in the original Highlander film, and you are watching Highlander Rewatched. This is Andy Armstrong. I was the second unit director, directing the action units in New York on the original Highlander, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi, this is Anthony Devonges, also known as the Dario Consoli from the Duende episode of Highlander, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Grayson. I played Amanda on Highland of the Series and the spin-off called Highland of the Raven, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatch. Everybody involved with Highlander has stories, and they're great, great stories. This is John Mosby, the author of Fearful Symmetry, the essential guide to all things Highlander, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. This is Ken Gord, producer of the Highlander series, and you are listening to the podcast Highlander Rewatched. Welcome to Highlander Rewatch, the podcast where each and every week we take a look at another facet of the Highlander universe. This week is a very special episode. Welcome to one of our Chronicle episodes, where we talk to the people behind the scenes, the actors, the directors, the producers, the writers of the Highlander series and movies. We have a very special guest today. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Keith. This is Kyle. This is Eamon. And today we are joined by producer of the Highlander series, Ken Gord. Welcome to the show, Ken. Just so you know, we tend to keep it pretty light. We try to have a good time, joke around. We, we've got like an explicit tag. We actually swear kind of often on our show. So if you care to do that, don't feel like the need to censor yourself. Uh, That's good to know. Since I'm a Canadian, you know, we swear quite a lot. So <laughs> Yeah, this, this is a perfectly safe space for that. Right. <laughs> I, listen, I listen to your show. Um, oh, cool. Oh, great. I listen, I listen to the show. It was very, very good. Very well done. Thank oh, you. Thanks. Thank you. We appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm a I'm in Venice. Venice, Italy, not California. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So, so yeah. big, big vacation or considering a new venue? No, I don't do vacations. I mean, I, 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 only, I only go somewhere if someone pays me, so. Uh, <laughs> That's not uh, a bad place to go for, if you're getting paid. Yeah. Well, I, I've gotten a little spoiled since, you know, I, I kind of... Started off um, in the early 1990s, uh, going to some uh, strange places to do series. Like the, the first place I, we, we did a series that was supposed to be set in the Florida Keys, and we shot it in uh, Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. It was called Sweating Bullets. It was like a CBS late night uh, show at that time. They, they had some like uh, I think it was called Crime Time after Prime Time or something. <laughs> Double Prime. And, 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 and then the executive producer told us at the end of that cycle, uh, by the way, we're going to be shooting the show in. Um, Israel next year in a place called Elat, which I didn't even know about. And I thought they were, I thought he was joking. And uh, we, we ended up shooting in Israel. So we were shooting like, you know, palm trees and stuff. And, and, and about 50 yards to our right are like camels. And 50 yards to our left is like, you know, the Jordanian border with like barbed wire and stuff. And they were at war. And we're telling people we're in uh, Florida. So Do you ever find a way to sneak that stuff into the show? No. The thing about TV or, or movies is that the camera sees only what you want it to see, so that's what's called cheating. It's called cheating. 
Yeah, it's like, all right, let's get a, let's get a real close up here. We can cut out the camel. That'll. <laughs> <laughs> so I got so I sort of became like a go to guy for going to places. So and I I kind of enjoyed it because I like I like uh, being a pioneer in places. And you know, I did this uh, series in Spain uh, called Queen of Swords uh, after Highlander, and um, we were in the desert where all the spaghetti westerns were shot, and that was like a really amazing because uh, you have to bring everything in. You're basically basically in the middle of nowhere. It's like one of the only deserts in Europe. I'm a Western, you know, freak, so I was like a fan of the weekend. I got, I got this book, and I drive around to all these locations like, oh, that's where uh, Claudia Cardinale came out of the house when Henry Fonda came, and, you know, that's the place where, uh, what's the guy's name from um, Death Wish? Uh, Charles Bronson Charles was like, Charles you know, Bronson, yeah. his, uh, all that kind of stuff. So I was, I was like a real fan. That's wow. amazing. <laughs> I, actually, I actually wanted to ask you about uh, Queen of Swords. Like that, that obviously has a lot of uh, Highlander alum in it. So how did that show kind of come about after Highlander? Well, um, you know, I'm just, I'm, I was a hired hand, so I'm, I'm not the guy that puts those things together, which is like, you know, miserable, brutal business. <laughs> but um, unlike, uh, you know, production, which is just, just brutal. I think a company called Fire, Fireworks, which had done um, Mutant X, and they did uh, Andromeda. Uh, is it called Andromeda, the one in uh, Vancouver, the uh, one with Kevin Sorbo? Yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so they, uh, they, they, I guess they sold the idea of a female Zorro. Uh, I think they sold it to um, uh, the syndicated network at the time, and, and we were off. And interestingly enough, so, um, so when we're sitting in the production office in the desert of Spain, and we're looking at the mask of Zorro, you know, the uh, Antonio Banderas yeah. movie, right? We're looking at that as reference, right? Oh, so oh, that, that looks pretty good. That looks pretty good. And then um, not only did we get sued by Sony because oh. of, uh, you know, the, the Zorro uh, connection, which which we won because I think female Zorro was not quite the same as Zorro, but uh, the director I'm working with now on this movie in Venice is a guy called Martin Campbell, and he directed The Mask of Zorro. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, so the new project you're working on, is, is that the, uh, the Cross the River and Into the Trees project? Yes, it is. Cross the River yeah, and Into the Trees. Yeah, it's an Ernest Hemingway um, novel, his, his last novel. Oh, wow. Can you, can you tell Which, uh, our listeners about uh, this project? Yeah, sure. It um, takes place in 1946, a uh, U.S. Army colonel, you know, after the war, and he, he drives from uh, Trieste, which is, uh, I guess, in northern Italy, to Venice, he wants to go duck hunting, and uh, he, has, he has a weekend with um, an Italian countess, and there's like you know, some flashbacks to the war, and uh, I'm going to tell you the end in case you go see it, but um, interestingly enough, it's kind of the opposite theme of Highlander. I was actually thinking about that, that this morning when I was um, sort of prepping myself for this phone call. It's kind of like, you know, Highlander is a study of immortality, and this Hemingway uh, book is a study of mortality, man's mortality. So it's, that's kind of interesting. A full 180. You know, people die in this in this in this book, you know, in this um, story. <laughs> Nobody ever died in Highlander. Yeah, yeah not, not a person ever. Nope. <laughs> well, that's as a good a transition as any into talking about Highlander. Uh, if I understand correctly, you came in kind of right at the beginning of season two. We've heard some colorful stories about what it was like, kind of in the beginning on Highlander. What was kind of the state of play? When when you hit the board, colorful. That's good. Um, <laughs> yeah. See, and I was the one who said that we're allowed to swear on this show, and right. I and I used the word <laughs> colorful. <laughs> yeah, that was a real bad word. Yeah. So, um, well, quite quite frankly, 
actually, um, my agent was called uh, for directors. Uh, Bill Panzer and uh, Marla Ginsburg were in Toronto, where I'm from, and they were they were asking my agent about directors. And my agent said, "You want to meet a producer?" And uh, they said, "Well, we already got one. He was actually a friend of mine." And they said, "Well, you know, but uh, sure, we'll check him out." And uh, I was on a, I was on a plane like two days later to Vancouver. And my friend, who was also a director, said, well, you know, it couldn't have happened to a better guy. Are you going to give me a couple shows to direct at least? I didn't, actually. <laughs> but, um, burn. Burn, yeah. For the first, uh, so for a couple of days, I um, I just watched all the first uh, year, uh, the, the first 22 episodes. And <clears throat> quite frankly, I didn't think it was that great. Like, I thought, you know, <laughs> so, I really didn't. I thought it was a little bit cheesy, and um, some of the, uh, you know, the clothes were a little bit sort of out there, and uh, I really hated the set, the antique shop with all the cow walk and all that shit, and uh, <laughs> uh, I, didn't, I didn't really like the, uh, you know, just the immortal of the week. It was kind of like one-dimensional, and uh, I liked Adrian. I thought he was, like, you know, fantastic. So when I came in, uh, the first thing I did was I, I tried to simplify it because I kind of felt that the greatest weakness of the show was that it was um, user unfriendly? Like it wasn't like you know Starsky and Hutch or like Love Boat. You know you could just tune in. You know twenty minutes in and you know you're right in the story. Right? It's like it wasn't too hard, not too hard to pick up. Right? You know easy access. But Highlander, you know it's a mythology and there's rules and you kind of have to know what it's about. Otherwise you're kind of sitting there and you're like, what the fuck is you know <laughs> what's, what, what's going on here? So I, I thought that was its greatest strength. But also uh, greatest weakness. But I also thought it was its greatest strength because. Hey, this is like a show that, you know, unlike, you know, Hercules or Zeno, which are, I'm not bad shows, I'm not dissing them, but, um, you know, it's a little, it's got a little more, uh, mythology, a little more sort of, you know, a thinking element to it. My thought process was, because the show is kind of hard to access and user unfriendly, I gotta, I gotta ground it. If you know what I mean by ground it. So everything sort of ha- I had that in mind. So, I, I kind of um, took Adrian out of his purple pants and put him in blue jeans and a white T-shirt. You know, that's, that's a, grounding, that's a good right? Call. Yeah, yeah. Good call. <laughs> yeah. And every now and then he would put on some something crazy, and he'd, I'd walk on set and he'd look at me and laugh. And he's a bit of a teaser, right? Because so, <laughs> he knew it would just drive me, drive me, drive me crazy, right? He's, he's wearing his like you know thick and green you know check pants and. and uh, <laughs> You're like, all right, we got to get MC Hammer yeah. out of here. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, the, and the other thing is, like, um, so we were designing new sets because the antique shop, uh, I think, you know, uh, Tessa was going to die, and uh, the idea was to get him, you know, a bachelor pad. And uh, Steve Gagan, the uh, fantastic production designer, you know, came into my office with the, the blueprint for the, um, the dojo. And I remember it was like snakes and ladders. It was like, oh, yeah, well, we'll have a stairway here, and then we'll have a hallway, and then we'll, you know, a little thing down there. And I was like, Steve, get rid of all that shit and just make it four square walls. He was like, <laughs> shocked. He's just like, how can you do this? <laughs> you're, you know, you're killing me. But, again, I thought, you know what, you got to just ground it and simplify it. Because if you can simplify his base, if you can ground it with where, where he lives and where he hangs out and what he wears – then you can t- kind of sort of, you know, get behind the character and sort of follow him into like all the crazy shit that goes on in Highlander, right? So I think, I think that worked pretty well. Well, whether it worked or not, that was my idea and I, I think it worked, so, uh. <laughs> oh, it definitely works, um, yeah. yeah. Let's see, uh, yeah, and there was a, you know, tiny bit of a, uh, learning curve, but, uh, luckily everybody was very, um, on side. It was like a great team and, uh, there was no, there was no real, uh, friction. Uh, David Abramovitz, uh, had been on, I think, I'm not sure how many episodes in, in year one, so he was already sort of an alumni. The first week he was in uh, Vancouver when I was there and we sat down at a, a little diner and, uh, 
we said we're the guys who are going to be sort of physically making the show. Uh, David from the you know the writers' room and me in the uh, on, you know on the ground, and uh, we're just we're going to keep our backs to each other. So we just uh, decided at that point to become um, you know sort of trust trusty allies and keep each other's backs. And if I said I couldn't do something, he knew it wasn't because I was trying to save ten cents. It was because really because I couldn't do it. If uh, if I could do something better. Like so the, the 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 example is the writers would write you know um, like a fight location they would write warehouse that was the default warehouse right <laughs> you know, it's always a warehouse or construction site yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah because it's an easy location you know they're easy to find uh, they got all kinds of shit in them and you know they're they're textured but you know I, I I sort of took it upon myself to try to find like all kinds of you know interesting places so if it's a warehouse. Like the, the the best example of that is that um, in France, exchange the word warehouse for chateau. Yeah. So, you know, the bad guys, the bad guys in a chateau, and it's going to be like a fight there. And Adrian and I were scouting Bordeaux, you know, for the beginning of that uh, cycle with um, four, the four uh, horsemen. Mm-hmm. And um, we we're looking around for a chateau locations guy that we were traveling with. Said, "There's like a you know, there's an old some World War II um, German submarine base." We were like, what? <laughs> we went to see it. It was like, it's like, that's fucking amazing, right? You remember that location? It was like, it was, it was yeah, incredible. It was incredible. like, you couldn't write that. So, so I'm just illustrating the point that, you know, they would, they could write something because they, uh, generic because they knew we would, uh, we would try our hardest to, you know, to, to make it better. And conversely, if they wrote, wrote something crazy like, and uh, in this scene we were going to have uh, fifteen dancing elephants, <laughs> we would say if we said we we said we couldn't do it, maybe we can have like a, a great Dane. Then they <laughs> believed us, so there was trust between us. Uh, was there ever any tension on the set? Because I mean, at the end of the day, I guess you're kind uh, of the final say on a lot of these creative elements. Like, did you ever have to kind of go toe to toe with any directors over some of these creative differences? Yeah. I think the uh, most most of our directors were you know, they were, directors are basically like guest stars on a TV show. Like you know the producer is you know kind of kind of the final word, and the director is like a guest because you know he comes in, he shoots, and he goes home. We had a few house directors like Clay Boris and um, you know Paolo Boris, and we we had because we had guys we liked and we stuck with them. I guess the only real creative thing, and it wasn't really between me and the director, it was between Abramovitz and the director, was the famous I think what was the show with Mortal Sins. Uh, show where it turned into an international religious war because uh, um, <laughs> the script had um, the French actor who, who's dead now uh, played the priest and he had to he had a gun and uh, yeah. the director Mario as a party who's who's a really good friend of mine the Maltese Falcon and he's got a bit of a temper he's a very passionate man and he says well you know my brother's a priest and there's no way ever. A priest is going to have a gun. I can't shoot that. And uh, the mem- the memo letters and the phone calls between Abramovich and uh, Mario's party. He- Mario's like, well, well, what if it's a rabbi? He's he's got to you know <laughs> stick a bacon and you know oh, you know you know let that go and. It became really kind of intense, and at the end of the day, he shot the, you know, the priest with the gun. <laughs> apart from that, what, what, how did you weigh in on that dispute? Did you? Uh, uh, it's it just was, your job to find the gun. Um, I think I was just trying to keep the peace. Yeah. That's what Canadians do. Yeah, there you go. I was actually really curious because you mentioned Clay Boris, Six Day Clay. They always refer to him as in some of the interviews I've seen about it. What was it like working on these really compressed shooting schedules? Because I heard that he's the guy they brought in when they really wanted to, you know, grind something out under a, a, a compressed time frame. That's right. I'm impressed. 
you knew that. <laughs> we're, doing yeah. our, we're doing our homework for you. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, no, most of the shows were uh, seven days, which is, um, you know, a very, uh, it was kind of ordinary back then. Now shows are shot in like, you know, 12 and 14 days. I mean, the, you know, TV's, TV's gone wild. But, you know, back then, especially for in an, what was called an industrial action show like, like Highlander, a syndicated show, seven days was kind of like the norm. But we were doing some shows um, in six and a half days. So we'd shoot six and a half days, and then we'd start the other show on the second half of the day. So both shows would be like six and a half days. Clay could do shows in six days. He just was very efficient. Unfortunately, your greatest strength becomes your weakness. Um, he got sort of this reputation as being a guy who shoots the schedule. So he had a hard time working after in the coming years because, uh, you know, the producers want you know, someone who tells a story. And it's all, it's all kind of bullshit. It's kind of like the impression. The guy busted his balls for us and total, a total soldier. If you said shoot it in six, he'd shoot it in six. He was a good guy. So it's kind of the, the guy on the ground having to manage a lot of this stuff. What did that end up meaning for you and your role? Were you going crazy on these six-day shoots, or was it just more of the same for you? Uh, it's kind of more of the same because basically the show, shows are made in prep. They're made in prep and post, believe it or not. So prep is where, you know, the schedule is um, created and built, and uh, if a, if a six-day show looked like it was you know needed to be shot in eight days, then you do what's called fixes, which means, um, you know, working with the writing department and uh, taking things down or taking two locations and putting them into one or taking like an exterior night, which is uh, takes much longer because you have to light and all that stuff and making it an exterior day. So there's all kinds of like, you know, tricks that you use to, um, to save time. So, uh, what, what, so once it's prepped and everybody's, you know, reason, reasonably assured that now it's doable, then the director just uh, does it. He's like a traffic cop. He, you know, he just makes it, makes it happen. So there's not really, a, not really a, a lot of emergencies on set, you know, apart from, you know, strange things. Other than that, the directors and the ADs, the assistant directors, are just, you know, very, very good and efficient. They know what they're doing. So they just make it happen. What was the, what was the there, strangest there was things, surprise that, that would have come up like that? Well, the biggest surprise was, uh, I mean, there's a few, but, like, uh, the one that comes to mind is the uh, Sheena Easton show. We're shooting at this uh, lighthouse, and all of a sudden some, I don't know what it was, some, I don't know if it was Canadian Navy, our uh, American Navy, some ordnance washed up on the beach. <laughs> so, right, yeah, I, I don't know, it was like unexploded, you know, mines or some shit. I, I don't really remember exactly <laughs> what it was, but it was some, something that you didn't want to explode while you were shooting. So um, we had to, you know, call the uh, Canadian Army and uh, evacuate and let them do what they did, which took about a half a day. And so, you know, you lose half a day. That's it. Nothing you can do about it. With the added security of make, not, it, make it work. With the added security of not blowing up the actors. Yeah. You don't want to blow up the actors, no. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good day's work. <laughs> or you yeah. can blow, blow those up for a quickening. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we've already got this ordinance. Right. It's just... Uh, it's just Blow that up. Though I guess Sheena Easton lived. She's one of the she's one of the lucky few. Oh, uh, that's right. There was no quickening in that that's episode. Right. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so amazingly, um, you know what happened in an action show is. I mean, Adrian is doing all his own shit, right? I mean, he's 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 doing all his own sword stuff. He only got hurt like uh, two or three times. I say only. You know, you don't want to see anybody ever get hurt. But R- Rowdy Roddy Piper, who's like the strongest man you've ever seen in your life, he hit Adrian's sword so hard, like broke the hilt, and like really hurt uh, Adrian's finger. You know about that, probably. Oh, and, yeah. Um, was, he, was he, like, bleeding out uh, on set the, during the final shots? Yeah. It was in the, um, like, the uh, exhibition grounds, or whatever it's called, the fairgrounds. 
And uh, he got hurt a few other times. So, you know, when that happens, you know, it's kind of a bummer for the actor, obviously, because he's hurt. But also, usually it means like, you know, an hour or two um, where you got to go, you know, check him out at the hospital. And, you know, Tex Cobb got hit by a beer truck. You know, it's like <laughs> crossing the street because he wasn't wearing his glasses. And, you know, that kind of that kind of stuff happens. You just have to uh, cope with it. We were doing the, um, the quickening with uh, David Robb um, under the Bastille where he finally got his. And uh, the quickening, there's a piece of... Uh, plastic or something that hit him just below the eye i mean i was there like holy shit to his credit he stayed in character and he finished the quickening and when the director said cut man oh man you want to talk about cursing he was livid so (laughs) i I fired you know that because that's that's not supposed to happen so i fired the special effects guy and uh, (laughs) went back to our our other guy who was also very very good and um you know he just tried to carry on I had a question about like uh, you. You were mentioning the cool locations you you found in France. Um, was it easier to find like cool locations in Vancouver or France, or was it kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other? That's an interesting question. I think uh, I think probably uh, Vancouver because uh, I think Vancouver has a little more diversity. It was, it was it's amazing that you can go to Vancouver and shoot you know for India, for you know Mongolia, for Mexico, for all these places. You know it's just unbelievable when you think about it there's always something uh, you know a place it doesn't even have to be that big it's just something that gives you the uh the feeling of the place or gives you a place to start building you know like a village or something so i don't know i, th- I think vancouver was uh was probably easier for locations don't forget in france you're um you don't have to shoot inside uh, the periphery like you know the circle uh without a permit obviously and uh because they're snobs uh, they don't get permits except to um, films, and you have to give them a script like you know two weeks in advance minimum. And we're getting scripts like seven days before we start shooting, right? And so we could never get a permit. So we had one sort of full time permit at the uh, where the the barge was, and that's also like the stupidest thing in the world. Every year, it's like you know we're shooting our standing a standing set, but that's called the standing set, right? The like the dojo, the uh, you know his uh, his loft. That's where you're supposed to go home, and the lights are ready, and you just like shoot the shit out of it, right? Because it's it's easy because you're not on location, like you know outside somewhere. And um, it's well known in the industry that the hardest thing to shoot is a boat. So <laughs> our standing set in France was was a boat. And every time another boat went by, you know it, it, the thing is going up and down, and how do you light the other side? And it's just like it was a fucking nightmare. But every year we try to. Uh, find a better place and um we don't it was too expensive or you know this and that and so every year we're on the barge <laughs> yeah. um, i can't wait to sell this thing yeah i had a question about like just kind of producing in general like in your early career you had done some like low budget movies like dream on the run or starship invasions how does producing yeah. like low budget sci-fi movies compare to you know, either like the movies you're working on today or a syndicated television show, is it like kind of the same shit, but just with more money or they're really like, was your job really different working on those early projects than it is, let's say today? I could be hired for any number of things. Like Highlander, I was uh, hired as a creative producer. So I had what's called a line producer uh, with me or line producers over the years. And on those other movies, uh, I mean, they were so low budget. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were just basically, you know, hey, let's make a movie, you know. Right. This guy's got some money. So I would say they were kind of, you know, amateur affairs, quite frankly. 
I guess I just I started off in the business just like bluffing because I, I had no idea what I was doing, and uh, there was no like film schools back then, so you just sort of you know did it, and uh, you didn't get paid, and you know you worked uh, for six months and for a thousand bucks, and then you started for six months, and you just really wanted to do it. So you were just sort of, you know, living your dream. And so little by little, I kind of got to actually know what the job was, I guess, just, you know, just by bluffing enough and, and actually having having to do it. So um, by the time Highlander came along, I, was, I think I was pretty good at um, doing it. And Highlander, you know, is the real thing, as opposed to those other movies you mentioned, which were not. That's, that's the difference. <laughs> but you got to meet people, meet people like Christopher Lee and whatnot doing some of these movies, right? That's true. Yeah, I think I posted a Christopher Lee story um, when he died. But in case you never read it, um, I'll say it. it's really it's a quick story. So um, Christopher Lee, yeah, so Starship Invasion. So um, I'm, I'm doing a documentary with uh, this guy uh, Patrick McNeed. I don't know if you remember him from the original Avengers. Oh yeah, the oh, guy yeah, with yeah. the bowler hat. Yeah, yeah. So his son was a friend of mine. He was directing a documentary, and it was Patrick McNee. And we're shooting uh, some hotel in uh, India, Jaipur, India. And Christopher Lee's at the same hotel, and he's shooting, um, it was like a British uh, miniseries. Uh, so I'm out for dinner with uh, Christopher Lee and uh, Patrick McNee. Over dinner, I say to uh, Christopher Lee, you know, um, Christopher, I uh, don't know if you remember, but I was the producer on um, this movie, uh, Starship Invasions. And he kind of looked at me and he gave me that like Dracula look for about like five minutes. <laughs> and he didn't say anything. He thought it's fun to remember. Yeah. Not as fun so he memory. loved it, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He had, he had a great time, yeah. <laughs> he, had no, he, he, he didn't have any lines, so it was easy. He just spoke telepathically. Cool. So, wait, did, was it him? He spoke telepathically? Did he like, was it all ADR'd or did he just literally not speak yeah. in the movie? He ADR because there was no, there was no uh, lip movement. It was telepathic communication, so it was all voiceover. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> it was like him, him talking telepathically um, with uh, by the magic of a voiceover. Movie magic. I think the mo- the show he was shooting was the Far Pavilions. That's it. Yeah, very good. Very good. <laughs> Far pavilions. There you go. Eamon's got the yeah. trivia. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> way, way better than those near that's pavilions. Right. They're, they're Much better right. than near pavilions. Omar, Omar Sharif was there and oh. uh, Ben Cross and uh, Amy Irving. Yep, that's right. When you were producing Highlander, I imagine with the, the tight shooting schedules and just like stuff must go wrong, I'm sure, no matter how much you try to prevent it, something, you know, must happen day to day where you're like, oh shit. Uh, what's the yep. like craziest thing that you had to get done either yourself or make sure it happened when you were kind of putting the show together? Like, was there ever just like a disaster and you had to like scramble to wheel and deal or make the show go on the next day? I can't think of any out and out disasters. That um, means you were doing your job, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, that's interesting because uh, when people ask me, like, what does a producer do? I say, well, if you see me sitting on the set in a director's chair and I'm just, like, watching everybody work, then fuck all. I'm the best producer in the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like one of those things so where it's that, like, yeah. if it looks easy if you're doing it right. Yeah, I mean, you just the, the secret is, uh, what is a producer hires the right people because he doesn't know how to do any of those jobs himself, but the other people do. So if you get good people... You know, you're you're pretty much covered. As soon as you know, you're prepping and shooting at the same time. So mostly you're prepping. So, you know, you can drop by the set at lunch and see how they're doing. And you can drop by maybe at the end of the day, you know, that kind of thing. But you generally don't have to sit there all day long because uh, it's in good hands if you hire the right people. Bigger Swords had many, many more problems because that was pretty crazy, like being in the desert there. Like flash floods and the lead actress got, you know, food poisoning once. And there's, it seemed like something happened every single day. <laughs> I would drive it in the morning and just... Think, what's going to happen today? So, that kind of a that kind of a show. <laughs> That's that feels like Highlander season one. 
now Highlander is kind of back in the news a little bit because uh, they're talking about a reboot. Have you thought about, you know, what this reboot means or, you know, what's if, if Ken Gord is producing the reboot, what's what's the uh, the reboot look like for you? Well, do you mean the, the, the feature or a series? Well, uh, we've heard that the they're doing a feature and in talks to do a series. So yeah, I hadn't heard about anything about a series. I I'd heard about the feature for years. I know I knew Summit was was doing it. I know uh, like Ryan Reynolds was attached and all this kind of stuff. But I I don't know where that's at now. I don't know. Maybe I'd go uh, uh, you know a young Duncan McLeod or something because I don't think I don't think anybody could play it better than Adrian Paul. I really don't. He he was perfect. He really was. You mentioned, you know, you had to hire the right people. Did you ever roll to play in any of the casting of any of the people we see on screen? If not the major people, then, you know, our illustrious guest stars and whatnot? Oh, yeah. I did all the casting. That's what, that's creative. I um, I cast every, every single role except for the, uh, you know, the semi-regulars or the regulars because that that's more of an executive decision. I had I had my two cents. But uh, I would say probably uh, Bill Panzer had the uh, final say on the regulars and semi-regulars. I never even ran um, cast by those guys. I, I just did it. Uh, sometimes uh, there would be a choice for a guest star. It would be like a choice of a few names, and I would call um, you know Bill and ask what his opinion was, and we would talk about it. But uh, apart from that, I, I, just, I just ran with it. So, so you single-handedly I'm got us sure. Rowdy Roddy Piper? Because thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, he, uh, yeah, I brought him. He, he's great. He's, he was such a great guy. What a nice guy. I, I was wondering, uh, what was it like working with Bill Panzer? How was he as a, a, a working producer as well? Bill Panzer was an incredible you know, human being. He was like generous and smart and you know, very uh, intelligent and bullheaded and uh, got things done. You know, he could be funky. <laughs> oh, yeah? Tell us about that. Be, uh, yeah. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> yeah, he could be... Uh, What's that word when you're a little bit um, not abrasive, but uh, you know you you resist things, um, stubborn, I guess. And uh, you know he had strong opinions, and uh, you could talk to him. But when he made up his mind, you know it was kind of like uh, intransigent was the word I was looking for. There you go. And he was he, and he was better in the morning uh, <laughs> before lunch. <laughs> uh, that 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 was that was when to hit him if you wanted you know really to get something. Good. After lunch, it was more difficult. I only had one sort of disagreement with Bill. Actually, in the entire five years, we were we were really good friends. Um, we were sitting in the uh, Lutetia Hotel uh, in Paris, and we were talking about uh, something for the show that was coming up. We were in, in prep uh, with Paolo Barsman. It was just the three of us, and we were talking about like how we're going to figure out this um, a device. Device is sort of just something that you do to you know get the story point and get on get on to the next scene, and we were trying to figure it out. And he came up with an idea, and we had, uh, Paolo and I, some of the other directors, you know, that we have shorthand. So our shorthand for um, something that was kind of a little cheesy, maybe, or cliche, we called it, oh, that's so Starsky and Hutch. So uh, <laughs> Bill came up with this idea, I don't remember what it was, and, and I said, oh, I don't know, it's kind of Starsky and Hutch. And Bill got really, really angry, really, really offended. And he was like, I don't think that's, uh, you know, sort of uh, you know, gave me a tongue lashing. And, uh, and then I got sort of, you know, my back up, and I said, well, you know, if you don't think I'm, you know, doing it right, you know, send me fucking home. I don't give a shit. I went, <laughs> I went back to my room. <laughs> and he came, and he came by. He came by a half an hour later, and he knocked on the door, and he's like, "Want to go downstairs for a drink and a cigar?" He's, he's a nice guy, but you know, again, like after as the day went on, you know, he became a little, little more abrasive. But on the whole, he was he was a great guy. Was it because of how much he loved Starsky oh. and Hutch, or? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Actually, he thought I was insulting America. He thought was... he thought I was insulting America. Really interesting. Yeah, 
Well, as denizens of yeah. Trump's America, we're, <laughs> we're, we're not offended. Nobody, yeah, nobody could have dreamed about that back then. I, 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 can't, I, can't even, I can't even dream about it now. I try not to dream about it now. I, actually, I'm, I think I may yeah. have stopped having dreams. Yes. Uh, just nightmares. Yeah. yeah, just nightmares. That's right. Well, speaking of arguments, we had an argument recently on our show. Kyle, do you want to... Field this question. Yeah, do I want to set the stage? Yes. Uh, yeah. p- speaking of, you know, your standing sets and whatnot, Joe's Bar, we recently had a yep. cartoonishly fierce disagreement about how you enter that space and if there are multiple <laughs> entrances or only one. The episode Courage is what I think sparked this because it looks like Richie comes in from like the balcony, but we only ever other. <laughs> this is a crazy question. Yeah, by the way. I'm, Sorry, embar- I'm embarrassed but... even asking it, but. <laughs> Usually we only see someone coming from the front entrance, but is there a, an entrance on the balcony? Oh, do you mean in, interior or exterior? Interior. Um, no. Yes. Oh. Oh. You have made you've made me happier than something this trivial has any business doing. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, you know, one of those small yeah, victories what, that gets you through a day. What might, have, what, what might have happened is you have to look, look for a cut because what might have happened was um, the director – uh, felt that it needed what was called a you know an approach, so the actor just does all of a sudden appear on the set. It's like hi, so you know <laughs> he may have shot it uh, in a totally different place, you know, two, ten miles away, uh, just so he so he had an approach because either he didn't do it at, on the day or uh, he didn't have time or uh, for whatever reason. That's 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 called again called cheating. <laughs> there we go. Awesome. There we yeah, have it. I still think we're going to argue about this, Kyle. You and I are going to go toe to toe every <laughs> week about this. I I, I can't wait. <laughs> I'm so excited. So Ken, when you are uh, not producing, what's what's a Ken Gord up to? <laughs> Holy shit! Uh, I mean, most of the time you're not producing. Most of the time in this business, you just try to get a job. You know, um, it's a, it's actually a pretty stressful life. I would not recommend it to anybody. <laughs> it's pretty stressful period. when you're not working. Yeah. When you're not working, you know, you're not making money and you're sitting around and you're thinking, I'll never work again. It's like, you know, it's it's awful. And when you are working, you're making money, but it's like, you know, brutal and pressure and, you know, aggravation, all that kind of stuff. It's also very stressful. So try to get a break. But um, uh, I would say I, uh, depending on the time of year, I could get into uh, sports, watching hockey or baseball. I go to the gym, I would read. There's always some work to do because... You always have to um, do what's called spec work because if um, sometimes, you know, people are trying to set up a movie or a show, but they don't have it, like, fully together yet, but they need help, like, you know, with scheduling or budgeting or whatever. So I do a lot of spec work because that's how you kind of attach yourself to something. And, you know, out of uh, ten things that you're specking, you know, if one comes through, well, that's good. Because otherwise, if you just said, hey, pay me for this every time, it's just not to me not as, uh, you know, smart as doing a little bit of, you know, work on your own time and, and being attached to something. So uh, I keep busy. Yeah, I keep busy. Is that how most of your gigs come through? You get attached to it early and then when, if a studio picks it up or something, you know, your name's on top of the pile? Most of my work used to come from uh, the two big companies in Canada, or the three, Alliance. But both heads of production of Alliance used to hire me died. So, uh, you know, that's gone. Then uh, Fireworks went out of business. 
and then um, there are some other companies, but, you know, things change. And then there's a lot of, like, uh, other companies that are starting up. You don't necessarily really know them. So, you know, I've had periods where I've had to reinvent myself. It's not like a smooth sail all the way. And Highlander, it's interesting because it, it's well-known all around the world. But in L.A., it was invisible. It was on at, like, 2 in the morning. You know, n- nobody ever heard of it. Seriously, wow. it was the, uh, one city where it just did not play at all. That's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, it played. It just it wasn't wasn't noticed. The Highlander, the Highlander fandom is so amazing. Like, I, I can't believe people are dissecting you know scenes from Highlander now. Like, you know, what is it, nineteen ninety eight, two thousand eight? What is it, twenty years later almost? Right. That's unbelievable, right? I think it's twenty five years. But, but, yeah. Jesus. Because <laughs> if I'm with a, let's say I, uh, I come across a group of ten people. It's always been like this since then and to this day, like, you know, as early as last week. Out of ten people, you mentioned, oh, yeah, I know I did Highlander, and six of them will say, oh, yeah, I kind of heard of it, or maybe not. Was that the movie or something? And they're kind of vague about it. And there'd be, like, three people that were like, oh, yeah, I've, I've watched that. And there's always one out of ten that's like, holy fuck, that was my favorite <laughs> show. Yeah. You know, like, always one guy yeah. or girl, you know? That's what's good about the fandom. It was like small but fierce. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, we, we that's all what we say about Keith too. So. Yeah, yeah. Thank Keith you. is small but small fierce. but fierce. That's what I'm I'm known by. Uh, yeah, we all, we all grew up watching this show. Well, in Philadelphia, it aired like Saturday afternoons, and we were like in our early teens, like twelve to thirteen, when we all started watching it. Yeah, you see, you were you were supposed to you were the you were the target demographic at twelve or thirteen. On a Saturday afternoon, you were the demographic the show was made for. But, you know, I don't know if you guys probably know that the um, the show kind of turned people's heads upside down because it was, it was again, made uh, for adolescents, male adolescents. The demographics, at the end of the day, turned out to be uh, actually um, just as many women and just as many um, 1835, which is like the key demographic. It was strange, and I think, you know, probably mostly because it was a thinking show and, uh, and Adrian. Yeah, that yeah. helps. So, uh, there's, there's a lot of him doing shirtless kung fu, and I think that helps move the ball forward. Yeah, yeah when, when I started watching it, I think it was my mom that watched it first, and because she thought Adrian See, Paul... There you go. My, yeah. mom, my, my mom really See. thought Adrian Paul was a beefcake, so... <laughs> hubba hubba. Yeah, well, he, he is. I mean, right. he's, he's yeah. an incredible, incredibly handsome guy. But that's exactly <laughs> it. It's like your mom is watching the show and turns you on to the show, right? Which is basically yeah. a sword fighting show with Queen in the background. You know, yeah. that, that is like, you know, a 14-year-old's dream, right? <laughs> right, yeah. And your mom is turning you on to it. That's why it's kind of surprised people. In France, for example, it was a, it was considered a kid show. No. It was on, on the, in the afternoon, just like uh, in Philadelphia, and, and uh, I don't think any adult would have been caught dead watching it. <laughs> Interesting. That's fascinating. Especially since yeah. it is a show about like decapitating people, yeah. So, like, yeah. It's got some like it's got some stakes. Well, you said they were snobby in France when it came to giving you permits and stuff because you were a TV show. Is that just all TV, or just because you were making what you were making? No, all TV because you know, I mean, Paris is like you know an amazing city. I'm not going to diss Paris. It's like probably one of the three you know top cities in the world with uh, London and New York. Right? It's like it's it's an extraordinarily beautiful. You know, incredible place. And when they do stuff, they do it so well. I mean, you walk down any street and you look in the shittiest little store window, and it's <laughs> like uh, it's set, it's set out like uh, you know everything is beautiful and uh, you know impeccable. And they really know how to present. Like they're fantastic at uh, at presentation. So in the same vein, they're kind of you know artistically a little bit um, you know elitist, and uh, 
it's not, it wasn't just our show. It's like all TV was kind of like, you know, substandard. So, you know, they, they cared about feature films. They cared about, uh, you know, movie stars and, you know, art films and stuff. So there was one lady who used to run the permit office there and, you again. You had to deliver your application like a couple of weeks before, and we could never do it. So we would cheat. So, like for example, when you see the show with um, Mia Peoples, you know she's walking around, and Adrian's showing her like uh, the Concorde and different places in Paris. The way we got around that is we're shooting on a Steadicam because the rule is if you put your camera on the sidewalk, you need a permit. But Steadicam, you just hold it. <laughs> oh, there you go. So, so you know we're just walking around with Steadicam, and it's like no permit needed. Right. <laughs> See, that's why you see so many uh, of the scenes are in chateaus because uh, they're outside the circle as opposed to being in the center of the city the landscape of tv definitely has changed since highlander i mean like the productions kind of through the roof they're they're almost like movies oh. now. uh i was i was gonna ask like, oh, it's unbelievable yeah uh, what, what are some of your favorite shows to watch now yeah i mean that's interesting because like you know the pilot of boardwalk empire which was like an amazing show the pilot was more than a full cycle a full season of 22 episodes of highlander I mean, wow. just think about that for a second, right? That's mind-blowing. The pilot. Yeah. Of course, you know, Martin Scorsese shot it, so. There's so many great shows. Uh, well, I love, I love Boardwalk Empire. I think The Usual Suspects, I, uh, I liked, um, you know, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And, uh, so many good shows. Uh, well, I can't remember one of them. So One thing we ask everybody uh, that's been on our show is we always ask if uh, you would want to be immortal. And if you were immortal, what kind of job would you want? Uh, you know, Duncan's obviously an antique stealer. People have obviously different trades they do if they could live forever. So what would you want? I think I'd love to live forever. That'd be great. I want to live forever, yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of people say no, I'm, I'm always confused. I'm actually, you know, I'm a baby boomer. We actually believe we're going to live forever. <laughs> so, um, As the kids of baby boomers, we um, also believe you're going to live forever because we have to keep paying the Social Security. But, <laughs> 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 I think um, if I if I wasn't in the movie business, I would have loved to have been an archaeologist. That's a good one. Yeah, I like uh, uh, yeah, I like traveling around and uh, and digging in the earth and finding shit. That would just be so much fun, I think. I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was growing up, and it was just because I had such a warped view of what they did between, like, the triple threat of Stargate, Indiana Jones, and Jurassic Park. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I want to be an archaeologist. Like, archaeologists fight Nazis, right? That's what they do? And, like, go to space? Yeah. Yeah, the reality is probably just, you know, it's grueling... You know, hard work where the chances of finding something, maybe, or, or you have to sort of sit there with a, like a toothbrush and shave off some thing for like four hours, right? <laughs> like, you know, crumb by crumb. That would probably drive me crazy, so. Yeah, but then you'd have a dinosaur named after you. You'd have like the Gordosaurus or something. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be pretty solid. That's funny. So finally, are there any questions that you wish you've been asked uh, in the past? Or just any stories that you've never got to sh- gotten to share at a convention or whatever? Or especially since you're on a explicitly rated podcast, that like anything like completely crazy <laughs> that you feel like sharing with our listeners? I mean, I do have stories, but I, I think that I probably told them all at conventions because... You know, I used to do my homework. I mean, I used to have um, actually, you know, uh, a fear of public speaking because it's a very common fear. But then, uh, one year um, during Highlander, actually in Vancouver, um, I was asked to uh, to say the uh, graduating speech at the Vancouver Film School, and I just said yes, and I didn't think about it because <laughs> if I thought about it. If I thought about it, I would have said no, and because I, and because I like the idea of you know confronting your fears because I think that's something we as human beings have to do to get over them. So I wrote out a speech. It was like I don't know ten or twelve minutes long, and I practiced it, practiced a few times, and you know made sure I was uh, fairly um, you know uh, lucid in, in the speech. And 
And uh, and the night came, and I went out on the stage, and there was like 200 people there, and I still haven't really thought, you know, internally about what I'm doing. I'm just sort of doing it externally, you know, writing the speech, practicing, walking on stage, delivering the speech, which I, I was told went okay. And I walked off the stage, and I had a little, like, meltdown. My knees started shaking, and I was like, holy shit, I can't believe I just spoke on a stage in front of 200 people. It really got over it. So at the Highlander conventions, I was feeling good now. I'm feeling like, you know... I'm totally confident. I've just done it, and I can do it. I'm over the fear. So when I had to go um, uh, conventions and sort of just be by myself and um, tell stories and stuff, I was looking at it as a as a fun thing as opposed to you know um, um, you know um, a nightmare or something to be afraid of. And I, but I, but I really did my homework. So I uh, really sat down and I thought about every show and I thought about you know what are some interesting stories. So I pretty much covered them all at the time, and I I can't think of any story I would would not have told. My my favorite story, of course, is the, um, you know, the Eiffel Tower story. And probably everybody listening has heard that because they're Highlander fans. So. Well, we've got a That's lot of really listeners that are, that are younger that haven't necessarily been able to attend a lot of these Highlander conventions. So if that's your favorite one, by all means, uh, sock it to us. I'm sure a lot of our listeners would love to hear it. Okay. Well, you know, the Eiffel Tower is like the holy grail of you know, worldwide locations, right? So the first year I get to uh, Paris, uh, year two, and I'm like uh, to the production people, okay, let, let's start planning to do a sword fight on the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> this huge silence, and they're all looking at me like I'm fucking insane. <laughs> and, they're, they're, and, they're, and they're just saying, oh, that's impossible. And I said, impossible and n'est pas français. Which is something Napoleon said to his troops, which is, you know, impossible isn't French, right? So I kind of like put their, put their shame on. I don't, know if, I don't know if it was the next year or two years later, because it was basically the same crew every year. I can't remember which year it was. I think maybe maybe two years later. We got a permit to do not just a sword fight on the Eiffel Tower, but a tango, right? A tango. Right. Now, who's done a tango on the Eiffel Tower? <laughs> okay, but that's not actually the story. So the story is, <laughs> that was just a little boast. So the story is, I, um, we did the quickening. We shot the lights going off the Eiffel Tower from the top to the bottom during the quickening. I wrote it uh, at that time with, like, faxes. I faxed um, a note to um, Panzer and Abramowitz. And I said, you're not going to believe what I just did. I just got them to turn the lights off on the Eiffel Tower for our quickening going from the top to the bottom. The lights just went off, like, in a, you know, just in a row, just like, you know, from top to bottom. And, of course, they're like, the next day they're, like, writing back. It's like, oh, my God, it's unbelievable. Oh, fuck, you're, you're unbelievable. Wow, we can't believe it and stuff. So what I didn't tell them was that every night at 11 o'clock, the lights go off in the Eiffel Tower. So <laughs> I, just, I just put a, I put a camera there at 1 minute to 11. You know, he turned it, turned it on and he shot. And he turned the camera off at 1 minute after 11. And we had the lights going off in the Eiffel Tower. Did they ever, wait, did wait, they ever wait, find you out? When did they uh, get wise to the scheme? I, I, don't, I don't exactly remember when, but, you know, it didn't last too long, but it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's good shit. There's also the, um, the culottes story. You know what culottes are? Are they like sh- a short pant? Or <laughs> well, like a skirt, but they're like shorts at yeah. the same time. They're really, like, awful, right? <laughs> so we had that scene where... Uh, we had the scene where, uh, I can't remember her first name, I don't remember her last name was Shelley, and uh, she was jumping off uh, one of the bridges in Paris uh, into the water. Um, mm-hmm. So I was having a meeting with the costume designer, and I'm saying, okay, look, you know, put her in a skirt because want to, you know, see the skirt flutter up, but whatever you do, like, no culottes. <laughs> and, and she looks at me, and she's, like, really, like, a little bit horrified, and I don't, I don't understand her reaction, but she's like, okay, okay, and... Uh, 
I went uh, home, and uh, my wife at the time, uh, I was sitting, uh, talking to her, and I said, you know, strangest thing, because I, you know, I told this um, costume designer, no culottes, and she had this, like, really weird reaction, and she's like, my wife said, but don't you, know, you don't know what culottes means in French? And I was like, no, it's just panties. Oh, <laughs> my God. Wow. That's amazing. That's... <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, so, That's so really I was funny. able to straighten that out the next day. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah, who is this guy? Yeah. <laughs> This, this perv. That was nasty. Yeah. Doesn't he know he's working on a TV show? <laughs> <laughs> We're in France, yeah. but... Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, the French costume designers, they, you know, uh, costume designers are supposed to dress people to their character. And um, the, the, the first year we had um, Stacey... She was playing an FBI agent. She, she was uh, over a few episodes. I don't remember if Stacey was her first name or last name, but yeah. really nice girl, really good actress. Uh, blonde girl. Agent yeah. Delaney, I think. That's right. Exactly. She comes to me on set and she's like, Ken, I really, this is, I don't know how to handle this, but this is really awful. Um, like, look what, look what they want me to wear for, um, for my coat. And she shows me her coat and it's like one of these, like, French shawls that goes, like, wraps around about four times. You, you'd wear, like, you know, walking down the shots to Lise. And she's like, <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to be like an FBI agent, you know, and I got to pull out a gun and all this stuff, and it's like, I, I can't even move my arm. <laughs> so you have to sort of watch everything because she, the costume designer's thinking, oh, she looks so nice in that, you know? And she's not thinking, um, yeah, FBI, you know, American, <laughs> right. you know, gun. Then she looked at, um, we had a homeless person. Uh, the show with the uh, the vampire were in that uh, underground garage, and uh, Jeremy Brudnell is like walking around and uh, stalking um, Adrian, I think. And uh, Dennis Berry and I originally uh, wanted to have like a homeless woman just like there, just like you know, to react and stuff. And the homeless person showed up on set, and she was wearing like you know, Givenchy or something. It's like <laughs> oh, no, but let's just you know, let's just send her home. <laughs> right. <laughs> Stuff like that you gotta watch. Yeah, those French are stylish. So Ken, yeah, yeah. Ken Gord, thank you so much all for right. joining us. This has been a real treat to talk to you and hear your stories. And I know we're all gonna be on the lookout for the uh across the river and into the trees film. Uh is there a, any sort of tentative release for that? Uh probably uh two thousand and eighteen, but I don't know where or when. Awesome. Because there's, there's no guarantee no no guarantee now movies get theatricals, right? So you know yeah, you could end true. up on Netflix or you, you don't yeah, you don't know. Well, we'll be uh, keeping our ears to the uh, the ground for that, and we'll be sharing the trailer, I'm sure, when it drops. Uh, so, again, Ken, thank you cool. so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. I had a really good time. I really enjoyed this because it's uh, it was a great show and, a, and it's great memories for me, so I appreciate you uh, having me on. No thank problem, you, Ken. Ken. Yeah, and yeah, it's our pleasure. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of the time on your shoot and enjoy Venice. So. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> Are there a lot of merchants? Thank you, Eamon and Kyle and Keith. Okay. <laughs> All right. We've been your rewatchers. I'm Keith. This is Kyle. This is Eamon. Bye. Bye. See you. Bye. So we are joined today by the Gordita himself, <laughs> the, Ken Gord. The spicy Gordita crunch. Everyone, dude, we're joined by a pun. <laughs> today we're joined by uh, Ken Gordy LaForge to uh, help us out here on the Starship Enterprise. No, He's a decorative fine. Gord. Nope. Flash Gord. <laughs> Flash Gord. Gord. Ken Flash Gord. In Ken, Ken Flash Gordo. Uh, I'm going to gourd the river. Fjord? Is that a thing? Fjord? Yep. Yeah, so you gourd the river. I like yeah, it. Yeah, gourd the river. See, but you never wanted to fjord the river in Oregon Trail. You always want to caulk that boat. 
I really liked uh, the TV show produced by Dick Wolf, Law and Gorder. That was really good. <laughs> Law and Gorder Special Victims Unit was really good, too, though. Gets to some dark places. Wait, what's though? a goiter? Yeah. A goiter. Wait, what's a goiter? It's like a, a growth in your like throat. A big, there yeah. we go. Ugh, that's <laughs> a goiter. We got a body in an alleyway with a goiter. <laughs> was that an iced tea impression? That was my iced tea. <laughs> that's not bad. It's okay. Me and Coco, we're going to return to my chalet, have some TLC. Very good. Ice does love Coco. He does. And Gordo. Uh, Ice loves Gordo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was absurd. <laughs>